You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Justice is Served. I am your host, Mari Fagel, joined by my lovely co-host, Lonnie Coombs. I have not been back in a while. I love this new intro music, by the way. <laughs> Threw me off for a second, but I'm happy to be back. Uh, so this is, of course, the show where we give you all of the latest in legal news, uh, in Hollywood, entertainment legal news, uh, in criminal legal news. I'm so happy to be back and with my lovely co-host, Lonnie Coombs. Great to be here, and we're so happy to have you back. It's fun. She's been gone, but she's back, so we're this ready to go. This is what I'm calling the all-new season of Justice is Served. Uh, I think my first show was this time last year. It was the first weekend in August. It was with oh, our wow. former co-host, Ebony Williams. Uh, so this is coming up on the first like the first anniversary of Justice oh is Served. We should have had a cake or something for you. Yeah, seriously. Alexis, <laughs> where, where, where's the cake for Justice is Served Black Hollywood Live? Our producer is holding her hands up saying, yeah, we want cake. We blew it. So um, I'm happy to be back and I want to discuss first our case of the week. Uh, this is a case, we have actually discussed this case um, several times on this show from the moment the crime occurred up through a lot of the uh, pre-trial hearings and now the trial occurred this week. It was an eight-day trial in the case of Renisha McBride. Uh, this is the woman who... Um, it's unclear how she got to the circumstances of what happened, but basically she may have had marijuana in her system, may have been drunk, got into a car accident, hit a parked car, may have been lost consciousness of some, at some point, and then about an hour and a half later, she shows up on the porch of Theodore Wafer. And she is knocking on his door, presumably for help. She just hit a parked car. What happens he takes his gun, he shoots through his screen door, and he shoots her in the face. He basically shoots her face off, is what the prosecution said this week. It was an eight-day trial. Uh, it was a mixed-race, mixed-sex jury. I believe seven men and five women. Seven and seven. Seven and seven uh, for the uh, ultimate mm-hmm. verdict. And the ultimate verdict that came down was guilty of second-degree murder. And so, Lonnie, I want to get your thoughts on this and especially on this case compared to a very similar case where we got the verdict last summer Mm -hmm. and a very different verdict Mm -hmm. of not guilty of, again, second degree murder. Of course, I'm talking about the George Zimmerman case. What are the differences? Why, Why did this one come out guilty? And why did the one last year come out not guilty? Well, let me start with um, talking about the differences. Zimmerman was a case where um, if you want to try and understand the not guilty, which many people still don't understand, but presumably what the jury was looking at was here was George Zimmerman outside. He starts following the young man, Trayvon Martin. He instigates a contact. 
And at some point, it goes back and forth in that contact because Zimmerman was able to show that there was some type of injury to his head. And then he ended up, you know, um, taking out the gun. So you could arguably say that there was a confrontation where it was physical back and forth between the two. And so there was more justification there for him to fear for his life and pull out his gun. That's if you want to, you know, to believe what George Zimmerman said. The opposite side here is Theodore Wafers inside his home. Now, I always say, but look, George Zimmerman was outside. Theodore Wafers in his home. If you want to say somebody has more right right off the bat to protect themselves, you would think it would be the person in the home. And under Michigan law, there's no duty to retreat when you are in your home. And this took place in Detroit. And if you think somebody's breaking in, you have the right to protect your home. Um, But then you go to the point that uh, Renisha McBride, the victim in this case, never actually got in the home. There was a locked screen door in between the two uh, um, at the time that he fired and killed her. She never touched him. There was never any allegation of a physical altercation. It was just in his mind, he said on the stand, he was fearful because of the banging, um, because he thought somebody was breaking in. So that's the differences between the case. But the verdict, some people are still very surprised by the verdict in um, the, the Renisha McBride case because they didn't necessarily expect it to be a second-degree murder. This jury threw everything. They threw the book at him. He was charged with second-degree mm-hmm. murder. Then he was charged with voluntary manslaughter. And the judge, even at the end, said, you can even consider involuntary manslaughter, which the judge usually doesn't do unless they think that the, there might be a reason for the jury to wanting to essentially compromise their verdict down. And a lot of people thought it was because when Theodore Wafer took the stand and testified in his defense, which he did, he was so, his demeanor was so contrite and broken and in despair that a lot of people kind of fell for that. I even heard law enforcement people saying, wow, you know, I kind of feel sorry for the guy. Um, you know, he shouldn't have killed her, but, you know, maybe they should come back with, you know, lessen, the, somehow mitigate the charge. Well, the jury didn't fall for it. You know, the jury heard him say, I was going to protect my home. I didn't want to be a victim. I opened that door to see who was out there, and then I fired my gun. And they also, I think, compared what he said at the police station right after, where he said some very, uh, I think, incriminating things, or at least people could interpret it that way, um, where he said he was full of piss and vinegar, um, which was interesting that the victim's mother and the news conference after the verdict, she used that quote. I think that was something that really stuck in her mind. Um, And so the jury actually came back with a guilty verdict on the second-degree murder and the manslaughter, which I don't think is even a legal verdict (laughs) because the judge has to take the top um, charge, which is the murder, and and essentially wipe out the rest. Um, But it was very clear that the jury had no problem coming back with the murder charge on this. You want to know why I think the jury had no problem coming back with a murder charge? And the big difference in my mind between George Zimmerman in this case is that he took the stand in his own defense. Mm -hmm. George Zimmerman did not take the stand, which is rare in a case where your defense is self-defense, where normally you must take the stand to say that uh, it was reasonable to feel that you were in imminent fear of your life, that you felt your life was in danger. You need to explain why exactly you felt the need to open fire. Uh, And George Zimmerman's defense, Mark O'Mara, put on just enough of a case that they needed to create a reasonable doubt as to what happened. Had George Zimmerman taken that stand, he would have been brutally crucified on, you know, on cross. Uh, And I think Theodore Wafer taking the stand, he 
I mean, he had to explain why he felt that he was in fear for his life that night and why it was reasonable to do those actions, but it hurt him in the end. One, because of the contradictions of what he was like just hours later at the police station and what he was like on the stand. You know, you said even law enforcement felt bad for him. Uh, His demeanor was, you know, very broken, but that's in stark contrast to showing no emotion just just after he killed this woman. And I think a lot of his lies really hurt him in the end. I mean, the changing stories and saying saying on the stand that he didn't remember that his gun mm-hmm. was loaded. Mm-hmm. A lot of these things, he tried to give explanations on the stand. And maybe that's why, you know, his defense felt he, he needed to take the stand. Mm-hmm. And he need, he need they wanted the jury to focus on the now, on, you know, how he came off after it was planned with his attorneys as opposed to the past Uh, you know, what happened at the police house. But I think that him taking the stand, there was a lot of lies that came out. Um, And I think that his testimony of why he was in fear didn't make sense. Okay, your car was paintballed uh, a couple weeks before. It's not like your house was broken into several times Mm -hmm. and you felt like someone was going to come and attack you. Your car was paintballed. Who cares? You're going to go shoot the people who come back to paintball your car? And, you know, you you forgot that your gun was loaded? Well, if you're in that much fear and you're on edge, why don't you have your cell phone nearby you? Why do you know exactly where your gun is, but you can't find your cell phone until after you kill somebody? I mean, I think that was something that really bothered people, too. I I think in Zimmerman, he gave a better statement to the police at the time of when they interviewed him. And then he did that walkthrough on the video. So Mm -hmm. I think that the defense felt more comfortable just standing on what they already had because the prosecution put all of that in front of the jury. So the defense could stand back and say, we're not going to put him on because, you know, we would have all seen that arrogant, smug side of him that just drives everybody crazy. And the jury would have hated him. But I think that, you know, we know the statements that um, Theodore Wafer made at the at the police station, which he explained and said, you know, I, I was probably trying to puff myself up a little bit because um, I was with police officers and I didn't want to come across like a wimp, essentially. Regardless, whatever it was, what he had in the record on this statement at the police station were these very more aggressive, you know, callous statements. And if those were the only ones that the jury got, I think the defense thought we got to let him at least take the stand and try to mitigate some of this soften his demeanor in front of the jury and and maybe they'll buy that but they didn't i also think this verdict came down so differently because it's a different time and it's a different place i think the fact that this was a jury in detroit Mm -hmm. and not in florida made a difference and it's Uh, a post zimmerman case and exactly changed by zimmerman exactly i think the time is different even just one year will make a difference because people are coming to start to understand these issues Mm -hmm. that, you know, stand your ground got a lot of attention, um, you know, that you need to think more through what happens, especially when there's race involved, when there's claims of self-defense involved, uh, there's gun issues involved. And I think just a year's difference made made a difference in this verdict Mm -hmm. and in the location. What do you think about the fact that this was a Detroit jury instead of in Florida? Because I think that people there uh, understand the underlying racial issues more. 
Yeah, although, you know, it's interesting. I really don't think that either side played any type of racial issue during the trial. And I don't necessarily think that it came up in the verdict either because he said, I didn't know if it was a man or woman. I didn't know how many people were out there. Um, You know, I think he was probably later when he found out it was a 19-year-old girl who was like, crap, I just killed a 19-year-old girl, you know. Um, so I, I don't even know how much that factored in when it came right down to it. I know it was a big play before the trial started, um, but the way the evidence came out and the way he said, you know, I didn't know who it was or, um, you know, if it was a man or a woman, um, I, I think it lessened the impact of that. It was interesting, though, because you talk about being in Detroit, and there was also this, you know, play about, well, it's a really dangerous area. So, you know, people are more on edge, and so they're going to react that way more. And the jury's like, mm, sorry, you still need to do some things like use your cell phone first. You know, um, if you have a locked screen door, okay, you're still okay. You don't need to kill somebody right off the bat. I, I just thought, you know, the, the level of civilization, you know, civilized sophistication by the jury, I really appreciate it. You know, no, we're not going to just be vigilantes out there and, and kill everybody who shows up on our doorstep. Yeah, I don't care if you don't have a home line. You grab your cell phone, you find that, and you call 911 first. Yeah. You don't grab your gun first. Right. He grabbed the wrong item first, yep. and I think that really resonated with the jury. And, uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting. The next trial that will be coming is, that's similar case is Jonathan Farrell. That's the 24-year-old man mm-hmm. who um, got into a car accident and then walked, um, was uh, going to a neighbor's home for help. That neighbor, what did that neighbor grab first? The phone, right. not the gun. They called 911. The police showed up. And then and Randall the Carrick, came. the police officer, was the one who decided to yeah. shoot several times an unarmed man. Yeah. Um, but I think the more that we talk about these cases in this country, the more people will start to understand the underlying issues involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting way to have the gun discussion that everybody seems to be nervous about, you know, talking about, well, should we have gun control? Should we not? We're talking about specific cases here. How is it reasonable and appropriate to use your gun? How do we as society say, okay, it's okay to use your gun here. It's not okay to use your gun here. And I think that's a very important conversation for us to have. And finally, I also personally believe that the defense kind of overplayed their hand uh, in trying to show that, uh, their client was in reasonable fear for his life. I think mm-hmm. that the the idea that, oh, someone paintballed my car a couple weeks ago, okay. You know, like I said, yeah. I don't think that um, matters much. And also, in their closing arguments, the defense was like, there was people banging on the doors. The floors were shaking. Mm-hmm. The windows were shaking. It was ringing all over. Like, I think that... It's like, come on, it's one 19-year-old girl banging mm-hmm. on the door, going from the front to the side, because she's not exactly sure, you know, where the person inside is going to hear her for help. Yeah. You know, I think they overplayed their hand, personally. Yeah, I think, especially when it comes down to a case like this, we only have one witness, and it's the defendant. You don't want to push it to the extreme, because, you know, if they don't believe one part of it, they're not going to believe any of it. And then mm-hmm. your whole, you know, story goes out the window, because they don't think you're credible. I agree with you, they should have stayed a little more within the parameters of what people probably believed really happened there. Yeah, so that's our case of the week, uh, Renisha McBride. Please tweet us your um, thoughts on the verdict, what you think, why you think it came out differently from the case of George Zimmerman just a year ago. Uh, and uh, by the way, my Twitter is at Mari Fagel. I'm at Lonnie Coombs, L-O-N-I-C-O-O-M-B-S.
and we will be reading some of those tweets later. Okay, let's go to On the Docket. We have five different cases, so we're going to jump through these. The first one is um, the rapper case. Now, I know you guys have talked about this um, before I joined the, the show, and I thought this was fascinating, honestly, that <laughs> this case even happened in the first place. But the New Jersey Supreme Court, the, the state's highest court, unanimously ruled on Monday that a defendant's um, violent rap lyrics should not have been introduced as evidence in his trial on an attempt murder charge. And if you remember, this is a Vontae. Skimmer, Skinner, Skinner. Uh, he was convicted of several charges back in 2005 when he shot Lamont Peterson, who was paralyzed. Peterson said, "Look, we were fellow drug dealers. We got into a fight. He shot at me." But during the trial, prosecutors uh, attempted to get in some rap lyrics that they found on the in the car that Mr. Skinner was driving. And some of these, you know, lines included, your last sight you saw was the gun spark, nothing but pure, dark, like Bacardi. And the judge actually allowed these these uh, lyrics in. And apparently um, there's been about a dozen cases in recent years where prosecutors have tried to bring in lyrics to show either motive or intent or even, like, uh, use it as a confession um, or that, you know, they were trying to communicate a threat with these lyrics. Now, I have to tell you, just hearing that shocks me that any judge would actually think that rap lyrics sitting in a car or anywhere would be able to then attach that to the defendant and say, well, this was his motive or this was his intent. And sure enough, thank heavens, um, the New Jersey court, which is six to zero, I mean, it was unanimous in his decision, said, one would not presume that Bob Marley, who wrote the well-known song, I Shot the Sheriff, actually shot the sheriff. Or that Edgar Allan Poe buried a man beneath his floorboards as depicted in his short story, The Telltale Heart, simply because of their respective artistic endeavors on those subjects, which to me just makes total common sense. Um, so I, I'm so glad that they came out and did this. But they didn't come out and say, never use it. They said, you have to have a stronger correlation between the lyrics and the actual crime, which still makes me really nervous because these are somebody else's lyrics. How in the world can you then say this person adopted them, followed them, and the jury should be able to consider them? When rap lyrics can be very prejudicial, um, you know, very inflammatory, and but, but how in the world can you ascribe them somehow to the defendant? I, I'm curious how they ever even argued that. Well, we actually had uh, both professors Eric Nielsen and Sharice Kubrin on the show. Uh, they are the two professors who penned the op-ed in the New York Times first, talking about the issue of using rap lyrics as evidence. Uh, and they serve as experts in a lot of these cases where uh, the rap lyrics, uh, you know, they try to say that they're inadmissible. And mm -hmm. so the second the verdict came down, Eric Nielsen uh reached out to me and he said that he was very happy about mm -hmm. the decision you know this is just the decision in one singular case of Vontae Skinner like you said there's several other cases where this is happening uh, I've seen people on Twitter reach out to me saying you know there's a case going on right now they're trying to use rap lyrics there's another case going on right now they're trying to use rap lyrics right. so I think um, this is just one case in one state in New Jersey but I think it will set a precedent not a binding precedent on any other state but I think other states will start to look to this decision and other judges will start to look to this decision when um, deciding whether rap lyrics should be used as evidence in a case and say hey uh, in that case, just because they found a bunch of lyrics in some guy's car um, that were written before the crime took place, mm -hmm. you know, why is that relevant? Um, with any evidence in a trial, the judge has to weigh the relevance to the crime and the probative value of that evidence in helping the jury come to a decision versus, like you said, the prejudice that um, – 
that could have on the defendant. You know, someone could think, the jurors could think, because he wrote those lyrics, he is more prone to commit a crime like that. And that's not evidence. Evidence Mm -hmm. is what happened in this case with Mm -hmm. this crime. And so usually uh, prosecutors have to show that there is some link to the crime. You mentioned motive. You mentioned intent. You know, if someone says in a lyric, um, I'm going to kill this man on this date and this mm-hmm. time, okay, that that maybe goes to, to right. because he slept with my wife. Right. Fine, then that lyric goes to motive. I want right. to kill this person because he slept with my wife, and my lyric said that. But there's nothing like that here. You have to come up with some sort of a connection, um, you know, I- identity. If it was a very unique way that this person was killed uh, and you know, someone's rap lyrics talk about that same unique way that someone's killed, okay, then it's more likely, oh, that is the same person. That's the same identity. There has to be some sort of reason. And when there's not a reason, then it's more prejudicial than it is probative. Yeah, you know, in the past, I've seen judges, I think rightfully so, allowing like diary entries where the person is writing and they talk about something. So those those type of writings, yes, I think you can ascribe to it. But when it goes into like poetry or stories, there's been cases where somebody's written a screen play about a murder, which, you know, and then they go out and they're accused of murdering somebody. And the judge looked at it and said, well, how similar is it? Um, You know, but anytime you go into an artistic thing, whether it's a song, it's a story, whatever it is, you know, then... Then the defendant has that wiggle room to just say, look, that was my artistic whatever. I like to talk about those things or I like to draw those things, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I went out and killed somebody. So... So I think it was a good decision, and we'll see how it affects these future cases uh, with rap lyrics being used as evidence. Um, Our next case, and on the docket, someone who um, is often on our show, we talk about him a lot, Kanye (laughs) West, yet again, has gotten put his foot in his mouth yet again. He's the gift that keeps on giving, as far as this show is concerned. Oh, yeah. Him, Chris Brown, and Justin Bieber just keep this show (laughs) alive. (laughs) So, uh, Kanye West, I don't know if you guys remember, um, attacked a paparazzi at the airport. Uh, That paparazzi, uh, this was, it was both a criminal and a civil suit. Um, And in in the case, the paparazzo's lawyer was deposing Kanye West as to what exactly happened. We've talked about on this show before. <laughs> the reason why some celebrities are so quick to settle a case is so that they don't have to go through taking a deposition because shit comes out in depositions. You are under <laughs> oath. If you lie, you will be charged with perjury and people say stupid things. Mm-hmm. Um, Paula Dean comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Justin uh, Bieber. Justin Bieber. A lot of people say <laughs> stupid things in their depositions and then TMZ posts it up. Yep. So, Kanye West, in his deposition, and this lawyer led him right to this statement. It's not like Kanye West said himself, um, I think the celebrity fight against paparazzi is akin to the civil rights movement. He started talking about the celebrity fight against paparazzi, and then the lawyer asked him if he equates the struggle of blacks in the past with celebrities today. So he led him right to that Mm. statement. He knew what he was doing, and he (laughs) knew that he was going to get a zinger out of Kanye West. Kanye said, yes, 100%. I equate it to discrimination. I equate it to inequalities. So he is basically saying that celebrities deserve rights against paparazzi. Fine. 
but that is on the same <laughs> level as what Martin Luther King and everyone marched yeah. for in the 60s. And died for. And yep. died for. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is why I made this at the end of the segment, uh, at the end of this show, our Tipping the Scales question of the week. What do you think about Kanye West comments? So please tweet us uh, <laughs> because I've gotten a lot of interesting, uh, colorful comments as to Kanye West comparison. Yeah. You know, it's interesting when you, when you, I, and I lived through some of the civil rights, I'm old enough to remember it. And when you remember the people who died in horrific ways uh, because of the discrimination and, and the hor- horrible atrocities that were going on, you know, sure, I, I think that celebrities should have some rights against the paparazzi. I think that the paparazzi in many cases goes beyond the bounds. But how many celebrities have lost their life over this? I mean, to, to equate the two, I, I thought was just in such poor taste. And his attorney, Sean Holly, who I adore, apparently, you know, was like, oh, let's take a break now. Let's stop. Let's Because she knew where he was going. And, um, you know, he's hard to control. And once he gets a, you know, kind of a thread in his mind, he'll just start going with it. And and uh, that attorney knew he struck gold on that one. But, um, you know, Kanye should have known better. He should have not have taken that bait, you know, and, and, and gone in that direction. And just... I, one more thing to roll your eyes about, I guess, on Kanye. <laughs> All right, Top Chef. I love Top Chef. It's on Bravo, and it's one of my favorite shows. Um, well, now they're being sued. Um, both uh, Bravo Network and the Celebrity Cruise Line, um, because they are going to start doing this thing, which I think sounds wonderful. It's called <laughs> Top Chef at Sea, um, where contestants from prior seasons come on to the cruise, you know, two or three, and they battle um, in, you know, food contests, and the and the um, people on the cruise can watch, and then they can also take some courses from them um, and do de- um, cooking demonstrations and things like that. Well, there are three producers who are claiming that they actually came up with this idea first and that they took it um, to the cruise line, the Royal Caribbean uh, cruise line and celebrity cruise lines, and pitched it as Walk the Plank, where 13 chefs would come compete, top chef style, um, for the grand prize, and the grand prize was to become the, um, the ship's executive chef. And... Um, they did not agree to do that. Obviously, the, the cruise line did not go with their idea, but they did go along and enter into this agreement with Bravo, and that's what they're planning to do. Um, and so they're now suing and saying, you know, they stole our idea. And it's not the first time that, you know, there's been lawsuits over reality show ideas. Somebody sued and said, I had the idea of, you know, Jersey Shore first. So that was another lawsuit. But, um, the interesting twist in this one is the producers are saying that there's actually some racial bias to it because two of the producers are African-American. The third one is married to an African-American man. Um, and generally, it is illegal to discriminate, obviously, um, in employment based on race. But we have yet to see how they're actually going to show that that uh, racial bias is the reason why they didn't get the show at the cruise line. So... Um, I'm not sure exactly where this lawsuit's going to go. I don't know that it has much legs to it. What do you think? I don't know how race will play into it and why they went down that road. I think it'll be hard to prove because it's two black producers and then another producer married to a black man that that's the reason Mm -hmm. they didn't go with their idea and then, you know, used their idea and put someone else's name on it. I think that that will be hard to prove. Yeah. Um, So and I think it just complicates the case even more. I think it could have been a simple, straightforward case of, you know, they stole our idea 
and now they're kind of bringing something in that complicates the matter. You know, maybe there may be more evidence, some sort of damning memo or something, mm-hmm. um, some sort of smoking gun, but otherwise I don't see it. Um, what do you, you think know, about the two show ideas? Do you think they're similar enough for there to be any basis for the lawsuit? They, you know, we've seen a lot of these types of cases with movies where mm-hmm. someone comes out with a, you know, gravity. There's, there's been a lot of different movies where then someone comes out and says, oh, I wrote a book 10 years ago yeah. that was exactly like that. And I showed it to someone who's now on that movie. Okay, well, it's hard to prove that fine, they may have seen your idea or heard your idea, but they that they didn't expand on it enough to make it something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, so 13 contestants versus three, walk the plank versus whatever it's called now, you know, um, maybe there's enough of a factual fight over this that it's something for a jury to decide or NBC will just decide, you know what, we're just going to settle it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Either way, I just think that I don't, I don't know if I love the idea, period, no matter who it comes from. Top Shop is a great <laughs> show, but being on a cruise with all the shit that's been going on with I cruise know. lines, and no. I mean shit literally. Yes, <laughs> getting sick and the food poisoning, you're yeah, right. Like, not why necessarily do you want to mix those two <laughs> elements? Think about that, that yeah. just, that's like not Good a point. show I want to watch. Yeah. But um, we'll see how it turns out. So on to our next story for On the Docket. This, this was a weird one. <laughs> And someone even tweeted me, said, Mari, why are you talking about this trash? But I just, I I condone Kid Rock for saying what he did and sticking up for himself. This is such a weird story. Basically, an employee of Insane Clown Posse um, is suing the group for sexual harassment. And a key piece of evidence is this glass phallic sex toy. (laughs) And uh, in the deposition, the uh, plaintiff claims that the man who harassed her then handed this glass sex toy off to Kid Rock. Oh, and was that, it the plaintiff who said it, or was it the guy who said uh, The guy who said okay, it. Okay. So I'm sorry, the defendant said... Because I don't want to cast aspersions on the plaintiff. Yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> the defendant said that... Um, that that sex toy he then gave to Kid Rock, and Kid Rock is in possession of this glass sex toy. So he, he was subpoenaed uh, <laughs> to then come testify about his possession and control over this phallic yeah. glass sex toy. And basically, he just really came down with a letter where he expresses his <laughs> feelings for the lawyers, for the case, for everything in general. He says, wouldn't you be pissed off that your name for days on end was being mentioned in the press when everyone involved knew you weren't involved in any way? Welcome to my side of the story. It is obvious that all of you are using my name and notoriety to garner publicity for yourselves, which makes you the worst kind of scum. You're the types of lawyers that make America a worse place for everyone Mm -hmm. because he's not even tied to this case even remotely Mm -hmm. like okay fine you maybe you now have this glass sex toy which it's questionable whether he even has it in the first place what does that have to do with the underlying sexual harassment case yeah and he says he doesn't even know any of the people involved but now because everybody knows once kid rock's name's attached to it the media jumps up now it's kid rock and glass phallic sex toy and, and you know on the headlines and he's like are you kidding me I, mean, I totally agree with him I, I think this is ridiculous and he said look either the guy's a pathological liar you know and just brought up my name or else he thinks he's a comedian and he's making this into a joke and this is ridiculous that the attorneys you attorneys are actually playing along with this and serving legal documents like a subpoena on me to try and you know encourage us without any further due process to try and figure out what the connection is and, and I agree with him I, I my hat's off to Kid Rock I agree I, I think that's horrible what they did 
Yeah, I'm glad he he stood up and said something because it was just such a ridiculous case yeah. that you might as well call it for what it is. It's trying to garner publicity. Yeah, exactly. All right, the last um, on the docket is Rachel Canning. Does that name sound familiar? <laughs> Remember the young lady who decided that uh, she didn't like the fact that her parents were telling her that they didn't like her boyfriend? So she moved out of the house while she was in high school, moved in with friends, and then sued her parents um, saying that they needed to pay for her essential, you know, daily needs plus more and tuition, et cetera. And um, she actually got somebody to take that case to court. Thank you, lawyer, again. Um, and then once it got into court and there was this backlash against her suing her parents who, you know, were saying, look, we're just trying to do the right thing and we, you're welcome back in the house anytime. They essentially settled that case. Well, she's back in court again. This time she was apparently with that boyfriend still, who her parents did not like. And she alleges that they were um, in their cars and that at some point, I guess, he uh, choked her with her hand, his hands during a quarrel on the street. She fled in her car. He followed in his car. She drove to the police station and made a report. So she got a temporary restraining order against him. And then it was going to be set for hearing. And he was went into court and got his own temporary restraining order and it was set for hearing where they were all going to sit there and gab about, you know, he did this, she did this. And somebody, thank heavens, cooler minds prevailed, got these two together and said, look, neither one of you are going to benefit by going to court, getting restraining orders, getting your names on the books, perhaps getting legal charges out of this. You know, she's going off to college next year. Good riddance to her. Um, You know, on a full scholarship and he says he's going to college too. And so, they actually came into court quietly, dropped their both the restraining orders. The prosecutor said there really wasn't enough to show any domestic violence charges, so they're all just going on their happy way. What in the world do you foresee in her future? This young lady who's already been in court how many times on, you know, really personal issues that are, are playing out in a criminal courtroom? You know what I see in her future? I see her wanting to move on with her life and later on trying to look for a job, after college, employers are going to Google her name, mm-hmm. and this is what's going to come up. It's an unfortunate thing that people need to think about today that you and I didn't have to think about when we were growing mm-hmm. up. But your actions, uh, do you want, when your name is Googled, what do you want to come up? Pre- pre- preferably nothing, unless you're, yeah. you know, nothing comes up. And <laughs> unless now, you won the Nobel Peace Prize or something like that. Yeah, okay, fine. fine. Something good. Something good. <laughs> but... Now, her name is forever going to be linked to these stupid lawsuits. Like, this is the most litigious 18-year-old I have ever seen. There are some things better left outside of the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And quarrels with your parents and with your boyfriend that don't rise to the level of domestic violence are things that are better left outside the courtroom for you to deal with personally. Mm -hmm. And... Her name is going to be Googled in the future. She may be 30 years old. She may have left all of this behind her more than a decade or, you know, ago. And employers are going to see this and think, oh, yeah, that's that girl who sued her parents. Mm -hmm. That's that girl who jumped to a judge every time something went wrong in her life. Red flag. That's not the type of person I want on my staff. And so it's really going to come back to bite her in the ass. And you know who I fault at first is, um, you know, once she left her parents' house, she stayed with her friend's parents and that those parents are the one who brought the suit on her mm-hmm. behalf and he was a lawyer mm-hmm. he should have thought better yeah. and said you know this is something we need to deal with personally as families together maybe get a therapist involved yeah. but now I think she thinks to herself anytime there's a problem I mean she's a young girl mm-hmm. anytime there's a problem it's better left to go to the court system mm-hmm. well 
it's only for certain circumstances does the justice system help resolve a situation. And I think a quarrel with your parents because they don't want you to be dating the guy that you're dating or a quarrel with your boyfriend that doesn't rise to the level of violence but maybe, you know, getting pissed off at each other one night or, you know, I I think that some things are better left outside the courtroom. And I think that she's going to regret all of these suits in the future. I, I agree. I, I don't think people should be able to use the court system as their bully pulpit. Just, you know, just because you happen to be able to get an attorney will take your case to court. And uh, finally, this is my favorite segment in the show, Tipping the Scales, because mm-hmm. I like to hear what you viewers and listeners are thinking about the stories that we've been discussing. Um, and one story, when I first tweeted it out this week, the Kanye West story, um, he, you know, he got a lot of attention for what he said. And boy, did people on my Twitter <laughs> really have an opinion on it. So I just want to read some of them. Uh, Holly Briley tweeted, weighing in, Kanye West is an asshat. That's all. Uh, I, I got some great ones. Um, this, oh, uh, Patty at Sweet P Loves TX tweeted, this guy just has no clue. What an insult to Dr. King and that awful Mm -hmm. struggle. He wasn't even born. Mm -hmm. Uh, Barb tweets, just simpler, what a jackass. (laughs) (laughs) Straight to the point. And, you know, it was just interesting seeing people weigh in on this. Uh, Tipping the scales, what I would say is that Kanye West needs to think before he Mm. speaks. Zip those lips. Think mm-hmm. before you speak. And don't let someone, like, guide you right to that statement. Yeah. You know, there have been some celebrities who have said things about the paparazzi and the fight with the paparazzi in the past on their own. I mean, Charlize Theron in an yep. interview compared it to rape. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow compared it to war. Mm-hmm. Um, these are things that people should not be making these comparisons. But Kanye West... He was led right to it. I don't Mm -hmm. think he was outright comparing it to the civil rights movement until the lawyer said, are you equating it to the struggle in the 60s? And he was like, yes, yes, I am. Yeah, let me go there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it's hard because on the one hand, when when you're talking extemporaneously and people are struggling to explain how invasive this is, and, you know, we've never experienced the celebrity paparazzi to the level, well, at all, at any level, but, you know, to the level they have is extreme, those people that you mentioned. And so, you know, I have some sympathy or empathy for them, but they do need to be mindful of what they're saying and that their words have power and meaning. And for them to, you know, refer to rape or to war or to the civil rights movement in that way just is, is, when you step back, I'm sure they all went, oh boy, that was, that was not the right comparison to make. Let's hope. Yeah, so you can keep uh, weighing in on your thoughts on Kanye West or any of the cases we've discussed. I want to hear your thoughts on the Renisha McBride verdict, uh, the Kid Rock ridiculous lawsuit, <laughs> Rachel Canning, the litigious 18-year-old. Uh, voice your opinions. Let us know. Tweet me at Marnie Fagel. I'm at Lonnie Coombs, L-O-N-I-C-O-O-M-B-S. And thank you for joining us this week. Uh, we will be back next week. Uh, as you've seen in the news, the closing arguments are going on in the Oscar Pistorius trial mm-hmm. right now. Uh, I think they just finished. The they judge did. will be ruling on that on September 11th. So she has a month to um, kind of mull over what she's heard, all the testimonies she's heard, all the arguments she's heard. So we will be talking about that verdict once that comes down. Uh, so thank you for joining us this week on our one-year anniversary <laughs> of Justice is Served. And we will be back same time, same place next week. Have a good weekend, everyone.
from producers Maria Menounos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African-American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host owner and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.